Good evening, guys. How's everyone doing today? My name is Ali Khan, and you're listening to AJK Health, Fitness, and Business. What's the show about? As I said multiple times before as well, but I never get tired of saying it. The show is about mental health, physical fitness, and success in the world of business. A long time ago, I heard, I think, Barack Obama on the stage say that my life changed when I thought, ask myself what I can do for other people. At that point in time, at a low ebb in my life, I thought what I can do for other people is is uh, is talk about mental and physical health and get other people that have been successful in the world of business because I believe that entrepreneurs are the solution to the world's problems on the show so that they can share their life lessons and uh, experiences with the world because I know that you want to do the same thing and aspire for higher things and listen to people that have been there and done that only serves to inspire most of us. It definitely inspires me day in, day out, and I absolutely love it. So you listen to AJK Health, Fitness and Business, and I have a very special guest with me here today. Who is he? The guest that I have with me today, his name is Mansoor Ijaz. He was born to Pakistani physicists who had recently immigrated to Florida, I believe somewhere around 1957. Grew up on a small farm in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. Got a BA in physics from UVA. Went on to do a master's in neuromechanical engineering from the world's leading human bio biomechanics lab at MIT and Harvard Medical School. Woohoo! I didn't even know about the Harvard Medical School, so that's news to me. Uh, vice president at Van Eck Associates after that. And then he started his own company two years into the job, forming Crescent Investment Management, a joint venture between his father and mentor on Wall Street. Klaus Buescher, I'm not sure if I butchered that name. Uh, you, he then la launched his MIT algorithm, the Carrot system that he has been managing for over 30 years. He once said in an interview that he suffered from guilt of his own wealth, and that was a driving motivation for him to intervene in Sudan and Kashmir, and because his parents were also native Pakistanis, he has worked tirelessly with the Clinton campaign to bring peace in the Middle East. He's been credited with helping to enact a ceasefire in Kashmir in the summer and fall of 2000 for assisting the government in obtaining critical intelligence data from the Sudanese government in the mid-1990s and much, much more after that as well. That's quite a resume from his day job. But my favorite, on top of being a successful entrepreneur, having attended MIT, started this company that has managed hundreds of millions of dollars in wealth management and working with the Clinton campaign to bring peace in the Middle East, he is also an American powerlifter, all-American powerlifter. And I really want to talk about that toward the end because I am a fitness freak. Uh, I'm also a powerlifter, and uh, yeah, I want to compare numbers, if nothing else, see where like what he did and uh, how far along I'm all, I am on the spectrum as well. But I'll elaborate that toward the end as well. So how are you doing, Mr. Josh, today? Doing fine, Ali. Good to be with you. I really appreciate your time, and I'm I'm confident that as do the listeners. I was uh, I was marketing the show the other day, like a few weeks ago as well, and I got a ton of responses about people who were wondering about how he did that, in particular the human neuromechanics algorithm that he developed at MIT, and then adjusted that to work the markets. I mean, how does that even work? Uh, so <laughs> uh, that's what I'm going to start with right off the bat. Could you explain to our audience what the Carrot system is and how it differentiates your investment management firm from competitors? What is Crescent Management to begin with? So uh, when we started Crescent in uh, 1990, uh, this was a, a firm that was a joint venture between Klaus, uh, my former mentor on Wall Street, and um, my father. <clears throat> and uh, we started it with 
a million from each in, each of them, uh, $2 million in assets under management to start. And uh, I then put my algorithm to work. Um, Klaus had, uh, had an opportunity to see how it worked uh, when the 87 stock market crash took place at a time when I was just an analyst with his, his company. He was the only boss I had on Wall Street and he was really a, a giant in the investing world. He was one of the first global investors that uh, came along, uh, you know, people who were investing in Japan and Germany and other parts of Europe early on. Um, and he was also a, a very decent human being. He taught me a lot about, um, you know, the, the humility of the job of investing because it's a big world out there and it's very difficult to manage sometimes uh, the process of, of figuring out what's going to work and what's not. And he was very good at, at, at sort of teaching me the framework by which global investing could actually be done. Uh, my father was a, obviously a great man. I, I have nothing but good words for him and what he did in this world and the, the contributions that he made to uh, theoretical and experimental physics were quite substantial. Um, and so they got together and said, we're going to give you a start. And that's how I got things off the ground. The carrot system is a set of mathematical tools uh, to eliminate as much as possible the what I call the um, uh, uncalculable risks in markets. Um, you can say it this way, that when you invest in a market, there's no way to know whether the price you're entering at is the right price, whether you're going long or short, uh, there's no way to know what tomorrow is going to bring. The world has so many different events that can shape a particular investment's uh, trajectory that there's no way to be able to calculate that. It's not a calculable problem. Even with all the compute power we have today, uh, there's no one that has been able to design a, an algorithm that allows uh, you know, these kinds of, of things to uh, be knowable, if I may put it that way. So that's why um, we have spent a lot of time trying to design a set of tools that enable us to enter the market at the right price, to manage the risk if that price turns out to be not exactly correct, and to scale the investments that we make uh, so that each investment is not imposing too much risk on the overall portfolio of assets that we have. Before we go forward, I do want to take you back and explore the, the motivation behind entering the world of finance and the algorithm as well, because the story about how you develop the carrot system is very interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you were born in a family of nuclear and solar physicists. Your parents were from Pakistan. You're a first-generation American. So what brought you to Wall Street and how did you make the transition from academic life to the rigors of the world of high finance, especially because you majored in physics in UVA and then you did human neuromechanics at MIT. So yeah. how did you transition there? So uh, that's a good question. And it was, uh, you know, there are certain things in life that are pure fate. And um, when I was living in Boston at MIT, um, <clears throat> we had a very dear family friend who was a banker at a major New England bank. And um, he got a job with Klaus as a marketing specialist. He was still one of the world's great marketing minds. He was also a Pakistani American. And uh, he came from a very prominent family in Pakistan. 
And uh, one, uh, when the Chernobyl accident took place in uh, 1986, in May of 1986. In Russia. Uh, yeah, in Russia. He called me up and he said, look, um, you know, we, we need some help in understanding what the ramifications of this uh, accident are. And would you be willing to come and spend a few months with us here during the summer um, at, at our Wall Street firm and help us to understand how all of this is going to, to play itself out because this is the first time in the in the real world that was the first time that we had had a nuclear accident of that magnitude. Um, and so it was basically my understanding of physics that brought me in contact with Klaus uh, through my friend. And um, it was a, 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 an act of fate, basically. God brought me here uh, uh, to New York to, uh, to, to do a certain job and uh, that job blossomed into something that was much more. I, I, I took a sabbatical then from my studies at MIT for two years. And within those two years, I built uh, such a reputation within the firm and on Wall Street as somebody who had ideas that nobody had seen before uh, that I was able to actually set up my own firm. So you can say it this way, that it was um, an act of fate that brought me, uh, the Chernobyl accident that brought me to uh, New York and it was um, some very hard work and doing my job well that kept me on Wall Street. That's how I started. Your story about how you entered the world of finance especially resonates with me because I, I wasn't brought up to be anything but ordinary, especially coming from a Southeast Asian society. I come from a family of doctors and engineers, and mm -hmm. I'm the only one in my family legit that dissented, broke the mold and decided to go into the world of finance. And I changed my major more than five times before I entered the world of finance. Now. Even at MIT, you were majoring or you were getting a PhD in human neuromechanics, right? So how did you even start learning about finance? Did you have any background? Did you pick up a book yourself? I still, you I still I still, don't know anything about finance. I, I'm a zero when it comes to, you know, back in those days, we used to read physical newspapers and, you know, you got so much information from the Wall Street Journal and so forth. And I, I never knew how to do any of that stuff. The, the, the fate... The, the act of fate that brought me to Wall Street was also the one that put me in the position to be able to use the only thing I knew how to do, which was my mathematical modeling skills. And what I saw, so let's now go back to what happened in 1987. Before the stock markets crashed in 1987, you had periods of time where markets would have trends for six, seven, eight months at a time. And it was easy to get in. For example, if you were two months late in the trend, you could still make enough money two months into the trend that you would still be able to you know, generate a sufficient return for your investors. And that's how people made their, their money at that time. Fundamental analysis, looking at a lot of different factors and so forth. Then came the stock market crash. And all of a sudden, what you had was a dramatic change in the way that the markets traded. Now, everything was about how the computer algorithms were controlling the markets and how the swings in the markets back and forth. Sometimes you had six, seven, eight percent swings back and forth two or three times in a given day. And that kind of behavior, a person like Klaus, who had a fundamental analysis, who read five newspapers in five different languages every morning to get a, <laughs> a view of the world, to That's see crazy. what was going on in the world. Yeah. All of a sudden, that had no value whatsoever in the way that investing was going to take place. 
there was a need to have now mathematical algorithms that could manage the risk, if you will, in a portfolio. So I, out of dumb luck, I had no idea how to create anything more than to start up my, my Microvax computer that I brought with me from MIT and to download the algorithms. And what I saw in the patterns that we had seen in human motor control, where you use dynamic optimization techniques to manage, uh, to, to model the behavior of the brain, uh, and and uh, I'll take you back to my experiments at MIT in just a minute so that you can understand that better. But dynamic optimization was a technique that we were able to use in managing our portfolio, uh, our, our human motor control system. The patterns that came from that human motor control were almost identical to the patterns that I was seeing on the screens in front of me that was taking place in the stock market. So I said to Klaus, I said that I would like to apply these models and see how they how they work. And so he gave me a part of the portfolio to manage. And he said, in this part of the portfolio, we're only going to use the signals that you get from your from the system that you're designing. And that's how we started. That was the the the, the that's what got the carrot system off the ground. It took me about a year to develop the algorithms so that we could apply them properly to the markets at that time. Computer systems were still up and coming. They weren't fully, you know, uh, integrated and you didn't have all the technology available to you at that moment that, that was needed. And then by 1990, the computers became powerful enough that I could run much larger sets of data and much more uh, intense algorithm structures than I was able to in the early days in the, in the mid 1980s and 1987. And that's when we decided together that it was better for me to go and start my own firm because we could actually build the, the, that we had designed and invented something that was the basis of starting a new company. And that's what we did. And we then built Crescent from 2 million in asset center management to about 1.2 billion uh, by the end of 20, uh, uh, right around the 2000 timeframe. And um, then I decided to take a break after the 9-11 attacks and I went to Europe to raise my family. But, but it was in that time period where the confluence of events, the Chernobyl accident brought me to New York, the 1987 stock market crash forced me to use the only thing I knew how to do in mathematical modeling at that time. These were two events of fate that structured 35 years of my business now on, on Wall Street. And you're saying, and, 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 I, and I want to stress this point in particular, because I've read a number of books. You're talking Peter Lynch, Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham. Uh, I, as I said, I love, breathe, think, dream, investing and business and entrepreneurship. A lot of people always say that the secondary markets are more about human emotion than anything else. It, it's psychology. And what you're saying then is that your knowledge and understanding of human neuromechanics was able to transfer over into the world of finance and you saw these patterns emerge as a result. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. If you look carefully at the way markets behave, <clears throat> they have uh, what, what I refer to as sinusoidal behavior. That means you get certain periods where more, you know, markets are very simple. People make them complicated, but in fact, the way markets behave is really quite straightforward. Everything is about supply demand. The reason that you get the high in the day, let's use a daily bar chart as an example. The reason that you get the high in the day is because there's more demand than supply. The reason that you get a low in the day is because there's more supply 
than demand. It's not co more complicated than that. And what I did is instead of dynamically optimizing the rate of change of acceleration in my arm to model human behavior, I dynamically optimized the rate of change of price in the market. And it turned out that the patterns were almost exactly the same. So now I'm constantly, my algorithm in my computer is constantly looking for anomalies in the market based on these price movements. And that's what we take advantage of. That's how, and, and the precise way in which I do that, of course, I'm not going to discuss that, but there is a very precise set of, of algorithmic rules that we apply that give us the ability to make money out of that. And, and we've been doing it for 30, this is now my 34th year running the carrot system. And um, we've done a reasonably good job for our clients. So my, my compounded rate of return during this period has been just a little above 30%. You've been and, beating the market ever since. So S&P is yes. like what, 12 or 13%. If your rate of return is 30%, that's crazy. Yeah, we're, we're more or less doubling what the market has done. Yep, yep. Especially given Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's, for example, a company hasn't been able to beat the market in the past 10 years and the carrot system is doing that now. All right. And now, and I, I've kind of asked you this in different ways as well. How do you develop the carrot system algorithm without revealing your secret sauce? How does, how does it, how, how have you had a successful track record in the markets? And you said to her, like in answer to that question as well, you talked about how you develop the algorithm, what it does, how the markets work. But you also talked about how you were going to talk about the different experiments that you did at MIT in neuromechanics that helped you develop this algorithm in the first sure. place. Could you elaborate on that as well? Like sure. what so, why was your big field? Yeah. So when I entered MIT, uh, there was a very large body of research being done in rhesus monkeys to try and understand by inserting electrodes in their brain to understand how they made a human, I mean, uh, their, their uh, mechanical movements of the upper extremities. The reason this was important to understand is because at that time, all of the prosthetic devices that uh, human beings were using were very rudimentary and they had no control in them whatsoever. So if I picked up an object using a claw uh, with a with a, a mechanical uh, arm, uh, the probability that when I set that pro that uh, object down on a table uh, was that I would probably break the table because there was just no feedback loop. There was no way to control the way in which that movement was being made. So the idea of doing the experiments on the rhesus monkeys was: could we find an algorithm that would allow us to then um, uh, transfer that information into a chip and put that chip into the prosthetic device and the prosthetic device would act in a more human-like way. Fast forward to where we are today, all the AI algorithms that are being used in human robotics today, in, in AI robotics, all of those have as their basis dynamic optimization theory in terms of where they started because Dynamic optimization theory in human beings is how do you control the rate of change of acceleration of your arm? And if you control the rate of change of acceleration, that's what enables the feedback loop that allows us to make smooth human movements. When I make a movement, I don't make a movement like this, okay? A jerky, herky, herky, jerky, okay? What I do is I make a smooth movement. And that smooth movement is because the brain is constantly 
minimizing the rate of change of acceleration. That's what it's doing. So in my algorithms with the markets, I'm not minimizing the rate of change of acceleration. I'm doing something else, but it's the same principle that I'm applying to the price movement changes. And when those prices move at a certain velocity in a certain direction, I then have the opportunity to take advantage of that. And that's how we, how we do what we do. <clears throat> the other thing I'll tell you is that because we could not put electrodes in the human brain to figure out what part of the brain uh, uh, fires when you make a particular movement, because we couldn't do those kind of experiments uh, at that time because of all of the, the uh, human uh, ethics issues, uh, we had to come up with a capability that would look at what the output was, how the actual movement of our arm took place. So we did experiments where we gave a, a, a human being a, a peg, and that peg was the size of the smallest hole on a board in front of them. And then there were three or four holes that were bigger than those. And we would ask them to make movements to the holes, uh, uh, you know, one to the other. And in doing that, we were able to capture in three dimensions the behavior of the arm. Now we know what the output looks like. So we then were able to calculate back what kind of algorithm would give us that kind of output. And that's what we did at MIT. Those were the experiments that I did. And I did them with the accuracy constraints. So I, did a, I furthered the theory of dynamic optimization quite far because normally when we make movements, it's not just picking a, a bottle up and putting it from one side of the table to the other. We have to put a key in a keyhole. Imagine the problem of having to take a prosthetic device now and putting a key in a keyhole. That's what dynamic optimization solved. And that's the theory that I used to apply to the financial markets because almost exactly the same kind of problems have to be solved there as well. Now, when you apply that theory of dynamic optimization, which is in my experience, unheard of. I'm studying for the CFP exam right now. They don't mention anything like that over there. <laughs> so when you talk about the theory of dynamic optimization and apply that to the markets, A, and I have two big questions here. A, are you trying to time or are you trying to price the markets when you're not changing the rate of acceleration of the price as it goes up or down supply and demand, as you said? So um, you're now getting a little bit into the secret sauce, but let me try to give you an answer. <clears throat> um, what we are interested in in dynamic optimization theory is how a particular movement takes place from one point to another. So I have a price point here, I have a price point there. How do I automatically generate the curve in between, okay? Is it gonna go that's, up or down? Down, and that's the algorithm that does that automatically. In order to then put that algorithm onto a chip in a human prosthetic device, it would enable that prosthetic device to move exactly in the same way a normal human hand would have moved controlled by the brain. In markets, you're looking at the velocity of prices because there's no such thing as acceleration. Your uh, market prices only change from point A to point B. At, at uh, time T1, IBM is worth $118. At time T2, it's worth 117.95. At time T3, it's worth 116.30. The speed with which that changed is what's of interest to me. And when that takes place, my rules give me the buy-sell uh, uh, points, and that's what I then implement. And, and but it's, you must have very automatic. fast fingers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, it's not automatic. Uh, one thing I learned a long time ago 
is that when market prices change very quickly from one place to the other, that usually means there's an external stimulus. A, a po politician said something. Um, a, a particular set of economic data came out that changed that price. You have to know what is the real world around you to be able to know that the signal that you're getting is right. But generally speaking, when markets dislocate in very large, significant degrees, they always self-correct. You'll, you'll remember this rule from the kind of investing that you've probably been familiar with. Markets always close gaps. If there's a gap in a price on a chart, the market will always come and close that. That's the efficiency of how markets operate. And what my dynamic optimization algorithm is doing is taking advantage of the inefficiencies in markets until they become efficient again. And in that period of time, we make our profit. I'm not interested in buying Apple at 20 and selling it at 100. I'm interested in buying Apple at 20, selling at 24, buying again at 18, selling it at 23, buying again at 26, selling it at 30. I'm interested only in the chunks that I get out, and that's how I compound my returns. You know, Israel Englander, Englander the, the billionaire hedge fund manager, does the same thing. He uses merger arbitrage, statistical arbitrage, different kinds of things. But that's also a form of trading where you're either buying at a high, selling at low. You're trying to predict where the markets are going to go. And what you're saying is that with your algorithm, you're able to do the same thing. You're able to essentially predict which way it's going to no, no, go. No, 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 no. We don't predict. We use an algorithm that does the prediction. But we don't predict whether a market is going to go up or down. We react to what a market actually does. That's the difference. Let me, let me explain something else about markets. And this, is, this goes back to now, if you want your, your viewers to understand something important that I've learned uh, over my years of trading. Absolutely. The, the market is always right. And the market is made up of everyone from the George Soros who has information that not everybody else does, to the Mansoor Ijaz who runs an algorithm that has a, a, a set of parameters that not everybody else has access to, to idiots, widows, and orphan sons, as I call them, okay? Meaning there's a lot of people that don't know what they're doing in the market, but guess what? They make up part of what the market's buy-sell is all about. If you look at a bar chart on any given day, high, low, close, there are buys and sells on either side of that high, low, close that are all determined. And it does not matter whether George Soros was on one side and the idiot and widows and orphan sons were on the other. It makes no difference whatsoever whether that's the case. It only matters that they agreed to buy and sell at a certain price and at a certain time. That's all that matters. That's the basics that, that people forget about markets. They think they can predict where a market is gonna go. Nobody can predict where a market is gonna go. What my algorithms do is they give me a predictive mechanism. That means when a market does this, I know it's going to do that based on my algorithm. When a market does that in a very sharp, very focused way, I know that it's going to self-correct itself. That's all that I know. But that's profit. That part is profit. Yep. This may be somebody else's loss, but this part is profit. And that's all I'm trying to get out, just those chunks. And that's how I compound my returns. That's why my track record, when you look at it over a 25 year period now, my track record has very few down years. I think only two or three down years. 
in the 22 years that I've been managing money. And in that period of time, I have probably only about a dozen down months because the way in which we build our track record is to simply take chunks out of the market along the way. And that's so not what most people do. Most people think in the money management world, think that the only way they should get paid is if they can figure out that they can buy Apple at 20 and sell it at 100. That's just not realistic. It's not, that's not how markets work. The efficiencies of markets don't allow that to happen. Maybe somebody will. Okay, if I buy a certain stock and just go to sleep and look at it five years from now, maybe it will be that, that that's the case. And some people say, that's the way I wanna make my return. We're traders. We make a return every single day. We know exactly what our profit and loss is at the end of each day that we come home. So let me let me ask you this, right? And that's that's a great summary of what Carrot, your program, does and what you do with your investment approach as well. And what still blows my mind is that you did that with a background in physics and human neuromechanics, as you said yourself, that you didn't really go for a, a, a formal financial education, for example. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So before I get to that, I want to know here about your thoughts on financial education as well, because you did this without any background in that. Let me ask you this, because I, I want to touch upon this and then go into your uh, your career in the pol political era as well, like why you decided to go down that route. Sure, sure. But with COVID-19 and the markets having completely been upended as a result with the record lows in March and now this rally over time, does Carrot go into offense mode? Do you have to, from time and again, is what I'm asking, without revealing your secret sauce, of course, do you have to adjust the algorithm to account for these never-before-seen changes? Or does it account for that? No, so the algorithm self-adjusts. And what, what I mean by that is that uh, we are constantly looking at uh, the, the, the beta value of a market. That means how volatile is a particular stock, how volatile is a particular market, and so forth. We then use regression techniques to um, model that behavior. And when the regression channels become very wide, we stay away from those markets. When they become very narrow, we know we're going to get a very clear signal. For example, um, oil had a shock this year. Yeah. <laughs> it went from plus 75 to minus 37 and then um, rebounded to somewhere around $20, $22 a barrel. At a certain point, when the market went sideways for a very long time, right around $30 a barrel, all of a sudden the regression channels became very, very narrow. That means that you knew that there was going to be a break. It could be a break up or a break down. This I don't uh, make any, any prediction about, but whichever way it went at that point, that's the one that you're gonna go with. We've been long oil now since the low 30s, and oil is trading today at about $45 a barrel. So that's a big, big profit. We've made 30% in that trade. Yeah. Those kind of trades come along four, five, six times a year. When they do, we take full advantage of them because those are the, the shall we say, the, the, the meat, the, the meat on the bones in terms of how we make our, our returns. But generally speaking, what people have to remember about the way markets behave, no one can predict where a market is going to go. Anyone that tries, they're wasting their time and they're certainly going to lose money. We react to what markets actually do. And we use algorithms to protect the positions once they're on. We use algorithms to enter into the positions. We use algorithms to protect the positions and we scale 
each investment one to the other. So as an example, Tesla is much more volatile than Microsoft. So my position in Microsoft is much larger than my position in Tesla. Zoom is a very volatile stock. Um, uh, Novavax and, and Moderna are very volatile stocks. So your positions in the portfolio have to be much smaller than the large positions in a Microsoft or Apple because they're not as liquid. They're not, their price movements are based on external events that no one can predict what the value of those are going to be. So you have to then, you can take advantage of them, but you have to be very careful how you do it so that you don't get yourself stuck in a hole somewhere. Yep, 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 makes sense. And you know what, I have, I, I can talk to you all day about finance and credit systems and entrepreneurship. I'm learning like a ton of stuff right now, but I do want to touch upon other stuff as well because your life has been so, so rich and you've achieved so much that I'm having trouble just keeping up and just talking about everything. I had a ton of things as you already know. But I do want to talk about entrepreneurship because you're not just a, a capital markets professional without any background in finance, but you've also been an entrepreneur because you had to build up, build a business from the ground up and then yes. you transitioned into politics. So let me ask you this. When you left Van, Van, Van Eck Associates and you started your own company, Crescent, what were some of the challenges that you faced as a budding firm? And what are your recommendations for other people that wish to create their own businesses, work for themselves as opposed to work for someone nine to five? Yeah. So the first and most important rule that you have to know is um, when you think about how a business is going to be structured, um, you have to think about, for example, do you know how to pay your bills? Do you know how to create uh, software that can keep track of your employees? Do you know how to incent employees? Do you know how to talk to them? Do you know how to make them want to do the work instead of ordering them to do the work? Um, do you know how to do simple things like, for example, network your phone system? Do you know how, for example, uh, to um, uh, create the computer networks in your office and how to service them if they go down? There's so many basic things that you think of how you construct a house that you have to construct when you construct a business, the, the legal framework, uh, how to create agreements. All of these things, what I did when I started my business is I uh, created systems for each one of those. So I had a systematic approach to every single aspect of the business that I needed to be able to run. My father taught me before I started Crescent, he said, if you cannot take out the trash can to the to the uh, building dump that where the trash has to be disposed of, if you cannot make a cup of coffee for the people in your office, if you cannot answer your own telephone, don't start your own business. Because the real point of starting a business is that you have to have fundamental basic uh, capabilities. You have to know how to do basic things. And if you don't know how to do those things, what ends up happening is your cost of running the business goes up exponentially. You, you, if you have to, for example, do all of these things yourself, your time cost goes up, your inability to be able to manage people is a, a very da damaging and, and, and difficult thing to deal with. And your inability to manage just the basic structures, paying the bills, making sure that your computers work okay, making sure that there's proper accounting, legal, uh, uh, you know, uh, business frameworks in place. If you don't know how to do those basic things, you really shouldn't start your own business. These were the challenges that I faced. In the first year of life as Crescent, I had to learn all of these things from ground up. 
while I was doing the trading of the portfolio. And there were times that it was very stressful, but those were the things that I then created systems for to be able to handle those things more efficiently. And as I did that, it became much easier to run the business. You know, Ray Dalio in his book, and I, I talk about Ray Dalio because his book Principles has been life-changing for me at least, and I've made him one of my mentors in life for that reason. Uh, yeah. It's packed with insights. One of the things that he talks about is that every great successful person uh, encounters this belly of the beast moment, this belly of the whale moment, whenever they want to achieve something that's more than what they are right now, be it in entrepreneurship, finance, philanthropy. When you started your business, Crescent, or in your life, and this goes to my, like, I'm, I'm jumping ahead to my finishing questions, but this is one of them that I think ties into Crescent right now in your experience with the budding business, is that what was your belly of the beast moment? At any point in time, you, did you think that this is becoming too much, I should take a step back, or I can't do this anymore? And how did you deal with that? So uh, our belly of the beast moment was where we went from one client to five. Um, all of a sudden, the the magnitude of um, different issues that I had to deal with, because each of our clients had a separate mandate and each of our investors wanted to have their portfolio managed a slightly different way. <clears throat> and I had not anticipated how difficult that would be uh, because I was using a trading system. I thought I could apply the same system to everything and, and be able to do it. But in fact, when one client wants to trade only futures contracts, one client wants only energy sector. One client wants only the stock market. All of a sudden, before you know it, it the market can amplify itself on you in terms of the tasks that are involved in managing money every day. And it can make it nearly impossible to be able to overcome that. That's when I had to expand my staff. Then expanding staff means you have to train them. <laughs> and when you have to train them, it takes time away from doing the core thing that you know how to do. And all of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, how do I do all of this? So in that moment, the way that I overcame it was I asked Klaus to come out of Venek and come to uh, Crescent and join me. So two years after I started Crescent, he then joined the company as the president of the firm. And then uh, until the end of his days, uh, we managed the company together. And what Klaus was able to do was take over portfolio management responsibilities and make sure that if something needed to be dealt with, he could handle it because that's what he was good at. While I took on the responsibilities of building the staff, building the intellectual architecture of our firm and training people how to use the trading system so that it would be done in a way that did not give away the secret sauce, but at the same time helped us to build the bandwidth of what we were able to do. And that's how we built the firm step by step. And then over time, it started growing and it grew to such a point, I think, I believe somewhere around 2001 or two that you decided to go into politics, which is what I want to talk about next. Okay. So you, you, you got this degree in physics. You were essentially a physicist before you went into the, into the world of finance. You studied human neuromechanics. You developed this super successful firm as a first generation American. So what motivated you to move, get involved in American and global politics and how did you manage your business at the same time? Yeah. So, so um, I would say that the flashpoint uh, that brought me close to American political life was uh, the death of my father in 1992. He died of brain and lung cancer and, and struggled for almost two years 
uh, with that disease. And so during that time, we got a chance to see, um, you know, some very important lessons uh, that my father wanted to teach us. And in my case, uh, he said to me, said that you're, as a young man, I was very arrogant and I, I thought I could do probably more than I really could. And he said that the only way that you're ever going to manage this problem that you've got of interacting with other human beings is to get into the political world and where you have to then deal with every kind of personality. There's no, no, you'll deal with people with strong egos. You'll deal with people with serious problems. You'll deal with people that tell you they've got a problem, but they really don't. And it was like every dimension of human being uh, is what comes out when you're involved in politics. You, you see all kinds of people. And so um, when my father died, um, I was invited back to Pakistan to meet with his colleagues who were running the nuclear program at that time. And they um, gave me some very clear insight into what my father's strengths and weaknesses were when he was a young boy with them, uh, when they were students together and so forth. And that taught me some very important lessons about what I wanted to do and, and be when I came back to America to you know, enter into these more difficult things that I did. And what I saw was that there was an opportunity for me to explain to a new president, President Clinton had just been elected at that time, there was an opportunity for me to explain to a new president how parts of the world worked, which America had sort of forgotten, had not paid attention to anymore. I'm talking about Afghanistan, Pakistan, and things of that nature. And in those places, very, very bad things were going on. The Madrasa network was coming up. The Saudis were funding um, radicalism's rise, if you will. And Muslims were starting to distrust the West in a very negative way. And so I said, okay, here I am, I'm an American. I've got now the, the money to be able to play at the highest levels of the political game. And I have a message to deliver to these people that is very important for them to hear in America at a political leadership level. Our leaders need to know what's going on in faraway lands that we can't comprehend and understand as normal everyday life here in America. You know, Americans in that sense are very insulated from the rest of the world's problems. You know, we don't, we don't want to know what the rest of the world is doing. We're only interested in what we're doing. And part of that is good, but part of that also creates problems like what we saw. So that's where I then said, okay, it's time for me to now try to help my country to understand what's going on in the Muslim world. I came back, I made the Clinton administration aware of what I had seen in Pakistan, what I had seen in some of these schools when I visited there. And that was the genesis of my interest to try and get involved. I had made enough money by that time in the early 90s that I felt, as, as I've said before, I felt the guilt of my own wealth. I felt like I needed to do more than what I was doing and that I needed to give back to society in some important way. And as a result of your, your your walk into politics and how you were able to uh, help the American government understand about the plight of people around the world and how to deal with that, not only for the country itself, but also for the world around it. Tell me this, because you one of the things that you did, one of the big notches in your belt was brokering a ceasefire in Kashmir. How do you, how do you, with party, with 
the way the countries generally work, or according to my understanding, is that they're looking out for themselves and what's in their best interest. So yeah. how some a, a problem as complex as that, how do you successfully broker a ceasefire or lobby for peace in the Middle East? What's what's the secret sauce there? What's the success to negotiation? In, in, so in, ju just as my path on Wall Street was created by two events that were completely external to to life. Life is is a combination of luck, of kismet and of hard work. These are the three things that go into making a successful entrepreneur. No one does it only from hard work. No one does it only from luck. Luck is for princes and princesses that are born into royal families, if you will. All right. And kismet is God's uh, hand, if I may put it that way, in the pathway of your life to gently change the direction in which you're going. So my inter involvement, for example, in Sudan came from a telephone call of a family friend who said, you've written about corruption in Pakistan. Let me tell you about the corruption in your own government. And it piqued my interest. What corruption in my government are you talking about? And then he told me what was going on in the Sudan. And he said, you have to come and see for yourself. And when I did, I saw with my own eyes the lies that my own government was telling about what was going on in that part of the world. So I then decided to do something about that because I'm a truth teller. I always tell exact truth as I know it. And it, it became my call to arms, if I may put it that way, to correct the corrupted imbalances in the world. And because I had money, because I had political access, and because I had an understanding of what the problems were, I felt uniquely placed to be able to go and do these things. With Kashmir, exactly the same thing happened. I got a telephone call from the, the daughter of Ted Koppel, Andrea Koppel, one night. She said, um, would you be willing to sit down and meet with, this was after the, 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 the you know, uh, some very stressful things had taken place in American politics. And she had seen me on the PBS NewsHour with Jim Lehrer and CNN and, and so on and so forth. And she said to me, she said, would you be willing to sit down with a friend of mine who has a, a, a proposal for something that I think you would be interested in? She didn't tell me what it was. She just said, please meet this person. It turns out that the person I met was a, ma a member of the Indian intelligence uh, community. And he wanted me to meet with the Indian intelligence directors. And so they arranged for me to go to Pakistan, uh, to uh, India, to have a a, a, a quiet off the record trip. And when I met with these people, they, they came to me with an idea that was so groundbreaking that I said, there's no way that we can't try to find a way to make this work. The Indian government for the first time in its history under the BJP party wanted to find a way to settle matters in Kashmir with Pakistan. There was a real true change of mindset in that moment under Atal Bihari Vajpayee and some of the people working with them, that they wanted to find a way to settle the Kashmiri problem in, in, a, in a what I'd refer to as a very decent way. They were willing to do things that were never possible, never even thought about in, in times before that. And so I then said, okay, what can I do to help? I then got President Clinton's buy-in. I made sure he knew exactly what I was going to do. He gave me a green light to do it. 
And, uh, and, and we then went and made that happen. And for almost six or seven years after the ceasefire, the first ceasefires were enacted, there was peace in the Kashmir Valley. I mean, people didn't die all of a sudden. Unfortunately, now it's gone back to where it was before. But for a very long time, we brought real lasting peace to that area because there were political leaders in India and Pakistan, Musharraf and his people also bought, bought into that, uh, that had the courage to stand up and take on their own, take decisions that were very difficult, very unpopular with some aspects of their governments at that time, but they did it. And all I did was make sure that there was the, the I was the little glue that brought together the, the, the parties in Kashmir with the Indian government. I wanna, I wanna take you back to one part that not many people know about. In my hotel room in New Delhi, on a given day, Yasin Malik uh, agreed to meet with the Indian intelligence chief at that time for Kashmir. And it was an amazing meeting because the first words out of the Indian intelligence chief's mouth were, please forgive us for what we did to the women and the children of your community. Please forgive us for that. That broke the ice. That softened the heart. It, it showed that the Indian government was big enough to admit some of the mistakes that it had made. And that's what brought peace to the valley. That's what made them realize that they in fact did not have an enemy in New Delhi, but they actually had some friends there. And it was my convincing Yasin Malik that these guys are for real, that he came to that meeting. And when he heard those words, it changed his whole mindset about how to go back and talk to his own people. Hey, they don't want to kill us. They actually want to talk to us. They want to try and find a way to make things better. And so those are the kind of things that I was able to do to, uh, in a sense, you could say it this way, that I saw both sides, in fact, running on the same train track in opposite directions, on different train tracks in opposite directions. My job was to put them on the same train track. In the same direction. In the same direction. That's what I did. And what I got out of that in particular toward the end when the guy said that we are sorry for putting your women and children through what we did was that the key there was to be able to leave their ego at the, at the door and, and accept the mistake. That really resonated with the other side of the party. And your job there was to recognize that they were willing to do that and then bring them together. And until, this day, until this day, there are two signs on my office door. Check your ego when you walk in and the market is always right. <laughs> and those are the principles that I used in my political life as well. <laughs> and you achieved all of this stuff in politics and in finance, even in physics, because you were brought in during the Chernobyl accident. And that's how you like walked your way into the world of finance to begin with. You did this while being an all-American power lifter. <laughs> so, so tell me about that. How did you get into powerlifting? Because so, I myself, I I, yeah. I, I love, I, I lift every single day. I love powerlifting. It's like my, it's the point in time where everything, nothing else matters. Yeah. So um, my powerlifting days started when, when I was very young in, in school, I was weak. I was short. I, I, I wasn't tall enough to play basketball. I wasn't strong enough to play football or baseball. I wasn't coordinated enough to do anything else. I was a complete zero. As a physical specimen, I was a complete zero. The only thing I knew how to do was ride my mini bike. 
And um, so I learned how to play tennis by hitting balls against the backboard. And it took me probably a year of life to learn how to hit the ball well enough that somebody else was willing to play tennis with me. And then uh, in my high school years, I became a, a senior member of our varsity team. Our team was a state champion team. So we were very good tennis players. And then when I went to the University of Virginia, uh, again, fate brought me close to powerlifting because uh, I was the number 13 player on the uh, University of Virginia tennis squad. And in my first year, I got cut. And while I was waiting to get back on the team, I used to go into the gym at University Hall to uh, lift weights and keep myself in shape. And one day in Mobiles, the uh, uh, Moses in this big, huge specimen of a man. He was an African-American, huge guy named uh -huh. John Gamble. And John says to me, he says, how much do you weigh? He just looked at me. He said, how much do you weigh? I said, I, about 110, 112 on a what? good day, 115. <laughs> yeah. I, I like half of what I weigh now. And he goes, uh, he goes, uh, you ought to come and work out with us one day. We need somebody in your weight category in our weightlifting team. And that's how I got started. And then I, I became a member of the Charlottesville Barbell Club. And John was the 275 pound entry and I was the 114 pound entry. Uh, after my first meet, which I took third place, I never lost a meet while I, I, I trained and, and lifted for two years, two and a half years I, I was in that game. And uh, my best lift in competition was a little over a thousand pounds. Um, when I was at the Nationals in um, in Oregon, I did a at one ten pounds of weight. At, at one, and so when I lifted over a thousand, I was at one twenty three. By that time, I had bulked up quite a bit. That's still uh, nothing. Yeah, so I, I I think my deadlift was around four forty. My squat was about four ten, and my bench press was two oh five. That's that's what I did at that time. Now I'm one seventy five, and my deadlift is four fifty. So your deadlift four forty at one. <laughs> 23 pounds. That's crazy. That's elite <laughs> level stuff. Do you still lift? No, I, I've, I've given that up. I have a bad back now, probably from the time that I lifted. And about three years ago, I had to have back surgery twice. And since then, I've, I've, I've stopped lifting. Heavy but you still work out and stuff? Because oh, yeah, sure. my, my wife is uh, my wife was a championship bodybuilder. And uh, she's well, that's a crazy. Beautiful, beautiful woman. And uh, so she she keeps me on the workout pretty pretty straight and clear. No no question about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's also good for the kids, you know. That's when the parents yes. work out as well. Then the kids do that on a regular basis. Yeah, Otherwise, we, you, you, my you wife's a good tennis player, so we play tennis quite a lot. And uh, our daughter loves to come and interfere with the tennis game and knock a few balls herself. And so uh -huh. <laughs> you're right. That's exactly right. So uh, that also leads me to my finisher questions. Now, I really like talking to you, and I have to say you've been one of the best guests on the show. I really enjoy the conversation. You're packed full of insights. You've, have, you've had such a rich life. I can talk to you all day. Yeah. Um, before I get to my finisher questions, I did have one question that just came to my mind right off the bat. It was about how growing up as a first-generation Pakistani, uh, American of a Pakistani origin in the States in the 1960s, 70s, and mm -hmm. 80s, How's how's that like? What was your experience like growing up as a as a as a person of yeah. uh, as a brown person in America around yeah. that time? We so here, that's a really good question, and I'm going to give you a, a very textural answer, which I think will be uh, useful for the people that hear this. 
So when we were growing up, we grew up at a time in Virginia, in rural Virginia, where there was a lot of prejudice. But the way in which my parents handled that is they became integrated with the community. My mother taught in the local high school. She uh, helped young people, uh, young women uh, learn how to sew, uh, how to uh, uh, in, enjoy colorful clothes from the Indian subcontinent, how to make uh, Indian and Pakistani food. Uh, th this, there was a real effort of our parents to integrate themselves. And if you go back and look at the newspaper clippings of, of that time, you'll see many places where my parents were featured in local newspapers because they were doing so much for the community. So all of a sudden, the color issues, the prejudicial issues, they melted themselves away because Americans are not really racist or prejudiced people. It's, it's that they don't, when they don't understand something, they prefer to stay where they are. Whereas if you look at Europe, for example, where I lived for many years, Europeans are integrated and less racial and, and, and motivated by those kind of things because they learn by force to have to live with different languages, different cultures, different ways of doing things because they're all right next door to each other. Italy's next door to Switzerland, next door to Germany, next door to France and, and so on and so forth. But in the United States, we as children, we learned from that example of our parents that we needed to integrate ourselves in. This is why I learned how to play sports by myself. This is why I learned how to write op-ed pieces, even though I'm not a very good reader. I, I don't read that well. I don't read books. I read paragraphs here and there, but I'm not very good at reading. I learned how to do all of these things because that was a way for us to integrate with the society around us. And I encourage people that listen to this that are of color, of, of different uh, nationalities than, than the white American uh, uh, motherboard, so to speak. And that is that Americans respect people that integrate and become a part of American society. Recite the American uh, uh, anthem, uh, uh, stand up and say pledge of allegiance to the flag, learn what the constitution is. You know, when, when you're a Muslim, you're taught that you must learn how to live in the society that you're in. I'm an American first. I'm not a Muslim first. I'm an American first. And that that's what integrated me into society. That's what gave me the opportunities that I've had in politics, in business, in personal life, in my, my sports life, in everything that I did. Nobody ever looked at my color, even though in the early days when we were growing up, there was a lot of prejudice around us. We used to have a lot of people make fun of us in school and so on and so forth. But then people got to know us and got to know how much of a part of the community we were. And all of those prejudicial uh, uh, barriers melted away. That's how I think people should look at what they're doing in life in America. And that's a great way of looking at it as well. A lot of people are more often than not, especially of color that I've talked to when they talk about growing up in America around that time in a, in a, in a predominantly white society back then, they talk about how they encountered these problems growing up. You didn't talk about the problems, you talked about the way you work your way around those problems, integrated into the society, and you showed them who you are and how you can create value for the people. Not one person, not one person in my professional life ever looked at me as someone of Pakistani origin. That was something that was of interest to them, but they always looked at me as an American. And why was that? Because everything I did was the way in which we do things here in America. We tell the truth. 
we're open. We don't hide things. We don't play games. We don't, um, um, uh, shall we say, manipulate. That's not what we do as a society. As a society, okay, individual elements in our society may do all of those things, but Americans by their architecture don't do that kind of stuff. And that is so different from the way things work in our part of the world. In our part of the world, everything is dissimulation. There's not a Pakistani leader that ever stood up and said, I can lead this other than Muhammad Ali Jinnah. There was not one who stood up and said, I can lead this country from the truth. Yeah. That we can pull people towards the truth instead Together. of pushing the lies on them and, dis and, 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 and fracturing them apart. This is this is not what happens there. That's what we do in America. And look, even in America, when we had leaders that did that, like our uh, current and, and leadership that we've had for the last four years, even then, America corrected itself. The system our, is more powerful. That's exactly right. And that's the key point. When you look at systems like I do all day long, America's operating system is still the very best operating system anywhere. Absolutely. On Absolutely, 100%. And that's why America is the greatest country in the world. Uh, you said you're also, and this segues to the next important question that I wanted to ask is, you talk about how you're an American first, not a Muslim first, an American first. So let me ask you this. What impact has religion had in your life, especially, and are you a religious person? Do you practice Islam at home, given that you're, uh, you're married to a Christian, bodybuilder, beautiful woman? And what lessons can we learn from your diverse personal family history? Yeah, that's a good question. So I am a, a, a practicing Muslim. I would not say I'm devout, but religion for me is about the interactions that you have with other human beings. If you look at the lessons of the Quran or the Bible or the Torah, they're all basically the same. They're not different. The only differences are that, you know, the, the differences between the religions are that people's interpretation of a certain aspect of those books led to divisions between people. But for me, religion is only about one thing. What are the rules and guidelines and moral principles by which human beings interact with each other and how we as a, as a species interact with the rest of the world that we live with? How do we treat our animals? How do we treat our dogs, our cats, our cows, our our, our baboons, our lions, etc. Uh, how do we treat the plants around us? You know, I, I, on my property, I have a big piece of property here. I go and I literally water the plants around my property every day myself. I go and take care of my lawn with my own hands. I do that because I, not because I uh, can't uh, ask somebody else to do it. I do it because that's my way of giving back to these beautiful plants that are giving me oxygen every day. When I go and buy food in the, in the store, when I bring that food home, I ensure that my children know how to treat that food with respect because that is part of the way in which religious, our, our, the religious operating system in our human being is supposed to uh, work. Where religion should not be about preaching to others what they should do. Religion should be about how you control your own impulses how you manage your own life structures. That's what it should be about. Yep, yep, yep. And to that end, right, Redalia advocates 
writing principles down for guidance for yourself. And at a certain point in time, when you've achieved the success that you have, especially building off what you just said about religion and the lessons that you've taken from that and how you apply those in your life, because I agree with that, right? And a lot of it is common sense, especially if you take religion into context as well. Be kind to people, don't lie, be straightforward, create value for the world, don't harm the things around you. I agree with that. Based on that, Dali talks about how you should write your principles down, not only for yourself, but also for your kids or people around you. Because after a certain point in time, you're in this building phase and then you enter the giving phase where it's more thrilling to help the community and leave a legacy behind as opposed to just keep achieving more and more success. And that's exactly what you're doing now. Yeah. So what are Mansoor Ajaz's top three principles that he would like to leave behind for, for success in your own life and for your daughter or for the people in general? Yeah. So, um, you know, there, there are many different principles that I live by, but I would say probably the most important ones are you must tell truth all the time in everything that you do. When I make mistakes, I'm the first one to admit them. When I say something wrong, I'm the first one to say, I'm sorry for that. It is vital that you always tell the truth. The second principle is that the only way you really genuinely achieve success is to interact with people in a humble and, and, and somber way. Because I interact with machines all day long. That's how I make my money. I'm, I'm a cyborg in that sense, okay? But in order to live in the real world, the only way you really get across with people is to be humble with them, to show dignity, to, to respect their dignity as a human being, whether they're smart or dumb, whether they're black or white, whether they're Muslim or Christian or atheist, doesn't make any difference what those things are. The only thing that matters is how you interact with them in a humble and peaceful way. That's what gives you the capacity to be able to do many different things at the same time. And then the third principle is never, ever lose your thirst for knowledge. Those who think they know it all are really aggravating to those of us who do. That's a, that's a very pithy saying, but a very true one. That means you must always have a thirst for knowledge in whatever you do. You must always want to know what's behind the next door that you're opening. Let me tell you a principle of life that I live by. Every day you wake up, there's a series of doors in front of you. You knock politely on each one of them. That's the humility. Whichever one opens, that's the one you walk through because you don't know which doors God wants open for you and which doors God wants to keep, to keep closed for you, okay? And when you open those doors, you knock on the next set of doors in front of you and that's how your pathway in life is shaped. This is something that people don't remember and don't pay attention to, that doors open the easiest, the ones that are meant for you to open. The ones that remain closed, no matter how hard you bang on them, move on to the next door because there's always, as they say with the markets, the market is always open tomorrow. If you lose all your capital today fighting against a trade, you're not going to be able to play in the market tomorrow. Cut your loss, get out. The market is always open tomorrow. Go with the flow. 
right? It's not really the event, it's the story that you attach to that event, right? And having that positive attitude, uh, case in point, when you talked about your life growing up in America between the 60s and the 90s, a lot of people would talk about, as I said, about the negative aspects of that. You talked about the positive aspects, and you talked about the steps that you guys took to make things even better. You, right. you And you treat every door like an opportunity because every cloud has a silver lining. And Mansoor Jaz's top three principles are tell the truth. Don't beat about the bush. Don't misguide the people. Be humble. Treat other people with humility and don't be arrogant. Uh, be confident, but don't be arrogant. And never, ever lose your thirst for knowledge. You're not perfect. Nobody is. Even, even I'm, I'm guessing you think you, you're not perfect either. And you're learning every single day. Absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. I, I'm nearly 60 years old, and I learn more these days than I did when I was at MIT and Harvard. <laughs> My thirst of knowledge only increases every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, and one more finisher question that I do have, and as I said, I can have a ton of questions for you, but I'm, I'm going to ask this as my as my last one. And then I want to ask about your thoughts on cryptocurrency because that's become an emerging asset class, and I think your insight will be valuable. Uh, is you're you're a you're a part of the crew going to Mars, and what is the one thing achievement that you most value and you want to be remembered by? Right, you're going to Mars. Elon Musk has created this spaceship, and you're going to go there. You know, you're not going to be able to come back. So, what is the one thing that you your biggest achievement, or the one thing that you after everything that you've achieved that you value the most? So. Um, we brought peace and tranquility to people that had not known it for the entirety of their history in Kashmir. We did that by bridging a gap of trust, which means that gaps of trust in history can be bridged. It takes talking to both sides in a language that they can comprehend and understand to make that happen. And so what I I think what I did in Kashmir was a microcosm of the, and a blueprint for what is needed to fix so many of the ills that are in this world today. We have conflict everywhere at every level. We have conflict at global societal level. We have conflict at inter-country level. We have conflict within families. We have conflict within individuals. It, at every level, if you apply the same systematic approach that we did in Kashmir, it will bring peace and harmony. You respect the value of the human beings that are in front of you. That's what the Indian government did at that time. You respect the knowledge that, they, that other individuals have. That's what the Kashmiris did. They understood that the Indians could actually do something good for them, that the Pakistanis were prepared to make ground for them to live in a more peaceful way. I'm giving that as an example, but the systematic approach that it took to bring those two sides together, to make sure that they were all on the same language, iterative, small baby steps, one after the other, that same blueprint could be applied to just about any kind of conflict that exists in the world today. And so that's what I what I think I would like to be remembered for. And is that what you would say to your younger self if you could, if you could go back in time? Or is that what your younger self was thinking about when you were 20 years old? So no question that I was thinking about how we could make the world a more peaceful place and how we could resolve 
conflict because what I do for a living is numbers. Numbers cannot solve conflicts, okay? It's the human architecture. Every mind is different. Every mind's um, uh, face, if I may put it that way, has to be approached in a different way. It has to be connected to in a certain way. And to bring each one of those minds, wherever they are, into one central space where everybody can live in harmony together, that's in fact the fundamental purpose beyond procreation. That's the fundamental purpose that we have as human beings. I mean, what more important thing can we do than to live peaceably next to each other? There's nothing yeah, more important. Because the greatest threat to our survival is other humans themselves. It's not bacteria, it's not anything else, it's other humans. So Doing we can stupid live things, exactly correct. Yeah. Exactly yeah. Exactly yeah. Uh, lastly, and I asked this because and I forgot to ask this toward the beginning, but I have a friend who is a cryptocurrency hedge fund manager and he would be very angry if I didn't ask this of you after I told him who I'm gonna have on my show next week. So, so yeah. I'm just gonna ask this because he's gonna be pissed otherwise. Sure. Is what are your thoughts on cryptocurrency? Because that's an emerging asset class. It recently hit like a twenty thousand dollar peak or like highest yeah. ever in like in the in the last few like last few weeks after PayPal and everyone else has also started moving in that direction, investing in cryptocurrency. So, yeah. have you been thinking about it, or has Carrot been adjusted to account for that? And what are your thoughts about cryptocurrency going forward? Yeah. So we're very active in trading Bitcoin. Uh, and we've made a lot of money from it this year. I can tell you it's been, uh, I'm up about 70% uh, for the year right now. And That's I crazy. Say, I would say we're probably 20% of that came from trading in the cryptocurrencies. Um, so it's been a big part of our return. Here's the issue with cryptocurrency. The reason that it's becoming accepted as an institutional asset class is because the cost of carry is zero. That means you don't have to pay to hold it. When you buy gold, and especially in physical quantities and so forth, you have to find a place to store it. You have to find a, place, a way to safely store it. And there's a large cost involved in that. Whether it's gold or it's silver or it's platinum, palladium, all of these fundamental metals, you know, gold gets used in jewelry and gets stored in vaults. Palladium gets used in a car. Platinum gets used in a car. So those are industrial metals that have dual use of storage. Um, silver has other uses as well. But my point is that when you start, when, when institutional investors start looking at the cost of carry for a hedge asset like gold or silver or these precious metals, they've started looking elsewhere because now they see that Bitcoin is stable enough. And the, if you look at the way in which Bitcoin rose this year, leaving aside the last two or three days of highly volatile behavior, all of a sudden the cryptocurrency went from moving six, seven, eight percent in a day up and down to now incremental gains each day, meaning it's maturing as a market. The number of people that are holding it is broadening. Markets only do this up and down herky-jerky nonsense when nobody knows what the price ought to be and people are getting in and out and getting killed on both sides. They're losing money on both sides. Um, when a market starts to behave in a very organized way, that's a sign that the number of people playing in it are, is broadening, that their decision-making timeframes are lengthening, and it's becoming a more systematic asset that you can hold. Now, 
The problems that remain with Bitcoin are that in difficult parts of the world, Iran, North Korea, places like that, these currencies are being used to do bad things. And that's what has to be, shall we say, regulated somehow or the other. Now, we, the global financial architecture allows them to do that because if we didn't, the other solution to that is that you have in North Korea, 20 or 30 million people dead because they can't buy food any other way. Uh, they build nuclear weapons with that. They buy stuff on the black market with Bitcoin as well, but they at least can feed their people somehow or the other. It's better for us to not have the human tragedy and manage the nuclear problem than it is to have them not have any currency that they can transact in, if you get my point. Yeah. But there's coming a moment where, there were, where Bitcoin, as it becomes more institutionally accepted and the other currencies, it's going to have to become more regulated. The fact that it's now on futures exchanges is the first step in that direction. So what I see is Bitcoin's value is going to continue to increase substantially over the intermediate term, maybe to levels of 100, 200,000 per Bitcoin, US dollars per Bitcoin. Um, we're, we're going to stay long for a long period of time and we're going to tolerate all of the up and down, uh, you know, six, seven percent days of intraday swings, because that's all part of the maturity process of a market getting bigger and better. But you see, you say that that cryptocurrency, you see that going up and you're going to stay long for that, that reason. It's going to go up two hundred or a thousand dollars or so or so on and so forth in the foreseeable future. But and that rational can make sense for stocks, equities, fixed income. You have a way to rationalize that. You have an analysis method, fundamental, technical analysis, uh, arbitrage, whatever. You can run the numbers. For Bitcoin, because I've been working in that field now as well, like I'm starting to learn about that and I've been writing for a cryptocurrency hedge fund now for a while. There's no analytical method or set method to actually analyze cryptocurrency and make a rationale for it going up. So. On what basis do you say that, that you see it going up? So it, there is an, it, it is a real asset. It exists. Yeah. It's a real asset. Now, people are buying that asset because it has a value relative to the reserve currency of the world. All right. It has a value relative to the dollar. Therefore, people can price it and people can exit, exit it and bring it back to a, a value in something that they can actually use. The other thing that's happening with Bitcoin is that it's becoming more widely used on platforms. PayPal is accepting it and you can buy and sell Bitcoin on PayPal. You can use credit cards to buy and sell Bitcoin. Yeah. You can, meaning there, there's more channels available to it. In the early days, none of these things were available and the people who were mining Bitcoin you know, we're, we're the only ones that could actually make any money out of it. The next thing, and that is that Bitcoin has a finite life. There's only a certain number of more Bitcoins that can ever be mined. It can't yeah. go any further than that. 21 million. And that's right. And when it gets to that point, then it becomes a supply demand issue. Who wants the, uh, who's going to create the demand are institutional investors. Let me tell you, there's a reason that the stock market is sitting at all time highs amid a pandemic. And that's because when an institutional investor gets more money in from pension funds because people are working and earning and the pension funds are increasing, 
by definition, they have to put that money to work. If they can't get any money in a treasury bond, 0.1%, the only place they can put that money to work is in the stock market. Because that's that makes the only so much sense. Liquid enough, all right? That's the only place that's liquid enough for all of that money to go. So when they go into the stock market, whether they get a 3% or 4% or 5% return on the risk that they take, it's still better than getting zero on a treasury instrument. Yeah. You may have safety in a treasury instrument, but you're earning nothing. And a pension fund has liabilities. They've got to pay 5%, 6%, 7% on the other end out to their pensioners. So they've got to make that money. Well, now that the stock markets have become fully valued, people are starting to look for other asset classes where they can make money. That's why gold went up this year. That's why oil is starting to go back up again. That's why soft commodities are starting to rally again, because people are looking for other places to park their money. And that's why these assets, asset classes are what they are. Mr. Jazz, with that, uh, because I know that you also have a finite amount of time, you have other responsibilities that you want to attend to. The last question that I have is, and I'm 22 years old, so this is directly related to me, if nothing else, on a personal level. What would you say to your 22-year-old self if you could go back in time? And Yeah, what would you say to him? A piece of advice, something to do differently, yeah. anything? So uh, I made two serious mistakes in my business career. Uh, the first one was that I was overly confident and arrogant in my abilities at a very early stage that made it difficult for me to connect with people that could have helped me to build my business into a much bigger platform. It changed the way in which I interacted sometimes with my own employees as well. And so, I was not a nice guy when I was a young guy, a young person. And so one thing I would say to myself is you need to learn the lesson of your father. Be humble, learn how to interact with people and bring people along with you for the ride. That's the first thing that I would say. The second thing that I would say is when you have a thirst for knowledge, you have to make sure that that thirst for, for knowledge is coordinated with a certain strategy. In my early years, I didn't have a strategy for building my business. I didn't uh, create a marketing department. I didn't create a presence online. There were so many things that I didn't do that had I done those things, I would have been a multi-billion dollar hedge fund operation across five or six continents. Instead, I, I short-circuited myself by not doing some of those things because I said to myself, I don't need to waste my time doing that. Let somebody else worry about that. And that's where I, I, I short-circuited my own business life's growth. Those are the two critical mistakes that I made. And if I had to go back and correct myself, I would correct those two things. So, so be a nice, uh, be a kind person, a humble person that can rally people around him and make more connections that way. Because your intelligence will always show through. My system, the value of my system has withstood the test of time. In 30 years of markets, every kind of up and down, every kind of stress, every kind of everything you could possibly imagine, my system has worked beautifully. But that intelligent architecture that was designed by my brain, God gave me that capacity, all of that could have made a much larger business platform, a much bigger legacy had I known how to deal with people in a better way at an earlier stage in life.
Yep, yep, yep. Which is why you want to be humble and deal with people in a better way so that you can rally them around you because a successful entrepreneur is able to do that. You can't do everything. But if you, you can get the right everything. people in the right place. No man is island. <laughs> yeah. Which is why if you can put the right people in the right places and you can interact with them, you can rally them behind your cause, you can do so much more, eh? That's and correct. B, you said have a strategic approach toward tackling your thirst for knowledge. That's correct. That's correct. Mr. Ajaz, as I said, I can talk to you all day. I have a ton. I still have a ton of questions, but <laughs> I don't open that kind of first because you can keep going on for hours and hours. And I, I know that you have to, other things to do as well. With that said, guys, that was Mansoor Ajaz, Mr. Mansoor Ajaz, uh, who has had a, a quite a life, a very rich life. Over the, he has achieved success in politics, business, physics, and all over the place. And uh, yeah, and I really, really appreciated his time. He didn't have to come on the podcast, but he did to share insights with me and the listeners out there. Uh, and I really appreciate that. Thank you, Mr. Ajaz. I, I, I can't thank you enough, not only on my, but also the listeners' behalf. And I hope to stay in touch one way or another. Guys, my name is Ali Khan. You can listen to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere and everywhere you get your podcasts. I'm also going to be expanding to YouTube in the foreseeable future, so be on the lookout for that. And you can reach out to me through my email, which is akhan at fandm.edu. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and every platform you can think of. So be sure to reach out about feedback, any questions, or any other guests that you want me to have on my show next time. And don't worry about how you can reach out to me. I'm going to add that to the description box below. I'm also going to have a very special song at the bottom. And I'm going to have everything about a, a brief uh, description about what we talked about in this podcast so that you know what you're getting into before you listen to it as well i really appreciate it and guys i'll see you two weeks from now again this is ali khan with mr ajaz signing out peace